Hey everybody, I'm Phil, and welcome back to It's Del Toro Time, a Guillermo del Toro podcast. This is another special Twitter-sode. While Ollie is adjusting to life as a high school senior, I'm going to be filling in with a few of these episodes about films that were recommended by Guillermo del Toro on Twitter, but weren't necessarily included as part of his overall ecstasy of influence list this week we're looking at 1946's the best years of our lives directed by william wyler starring myrna loy frederick march dana andrews Teresa wright virginia mayo and harold russell uh, as well as hoagie carmichael and a million other bit players uh the best years of our lives is william wyler's follow-up to miss miniver mrs miniver sorry she was a happily married woman until the sequel to mrs miniver when well We'll never get to that because we're never going to watch the sequel to Mrs. Miniver in this. But this is William Wyler's follow-up to that in the sense that it's another movie about World War II. But in between Mrs. Miniver and The Best Years of Our Lives, William Wyler had the opportunity to actually participate in World War II, filming documentary footage uh, for a series of nonfiction films. He put his life on the line to get up close and personal with the war. And while he was always a realist about the impact war had on the lives of people, as was clear from Mrs. Miniver... Uh, the Best Years of Our Lives gave him the opportunity to reflect on the impact war has on the lives of the people who actually fought in the war. And it is a, if you haven't seen it, there's really not a whole lot else I can say about The Best Years of Our Lives that hasn't already been said by people much more eloquent than I. But it is the story of three men who return from the war and have to adjust to life post-war and face up to the fact that the United States wasn't prepared then, I mean, it's not prepared now. It just isn't. We don't really take care of service people once they return. And it's a very realistic look at the impact war has on the lives of the people who fought it. Um, this movie won a ton of awards. In fact, it won so many Academy Awards that no one's really sure if it won seven Academy Awards or if it won nine Academy <laughs> Awards because there's two in there that sort of skirt this strange line between like, did they, did, does this one count or should we only count the ones that were like one 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 it won best picture best director best actor for frederick march best supporting actor for harold russell uh best film editing for daniel mandel best adapted screenplay for robert e sherwood and best original score for hugo friedhofer but it also won a special acting award again for harold russell making as as is pointed out in many anything you read about this points out that harold russell uh won the academy award for best supporting actor for his role as homer but he also won a special recognition academy award for his role as homer making him the only actor in the in history to win an academy two academy awards for the same role in the same year uh because the academy was like this guy's not an actor. There's no way he's going to actually win Best Supporting Actor for playing this role, but he deserves some recognition for it, so let's give him a special award. And then, of course, he went and won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for playing Homer. Some people say this movie won seven awards but received nine. Some people just say it received nine awards, so you'll sometimes see it as winner of nine Academy Awards. The, basically, it, it won a ton of awards, and, and with reason. So The Best Years of Our Lives is sort of the anti-propaganda movie, where Mrs. Miniver was a propaganda piece to get us all ginned up for the war. This was a movie saying, hey, you know that war we all got excited about and we're pretty happy to have participated in? It wasn't a happy experience for everybody. So this movie follows three men, Fred, Homer, and Al, who are returning from war. 
uh, Fred was a soda jerk who uh, spent the war his war experience in a bomber, uh, dropping bombs on people. He won numerous citations. He was kind of a he was kind of the guy who people think of as a flyboy when in fact he had a really traumatic experience in the war. Uh, and you'll see that throughout this movie, people are like, ah, just another pretty boy, another pretty flyboy. And he is. I mean, it's Dana Andrews. This is a good-looking guy. He returns from the war and. He, you find out throughout the course of this movie that he sort of went off to war just because he had to. He didn't really have a whole lot of prospects. He was living with his mom and dad, in a sh literally in a shack down by the train tracks. Uh, he was working as a soda jerk and not earning much money and uh, kind of grew up in the war. Like It, it, it made him uh, an adult. Uh, he saw things and experienced things that he had never known he was going to see or experience. And so when he comes back, he seems a much more mature man than you can imagine he was when he left. And he had gotten married uh, before he left to uh, a showgirl named Marie, portrayed by the illustrious Virginia Mayo. Virginia Mayo takes a role that could have been very shallow and unlikable and turns her into a well-rounded character and realizes that this life isn't for him anymore. He wants more out of life than going back to the soda counter. And his wife stopped writing him while he was overseas. And she's expecting him to sort of return to what he was, but he's not really willing to do that anymore. And also, he's having nightmares about his experience. He's got PTSD about fighting in the war, and that's something that no one is prepared to deal with. So that's Fred. We've got Homer. Homer Parrish, who is played by Harold Russell, who was not an actor. Uh, famously, William Wyler wanted a man who was who actually had an experience uh, that could that could inform his performance and oh boy Harold Russell did Harold Russell was a Canadian World War II veteran who lost his hands in an accident in World War II had a documentary made about him that William Wyler saw and I believe that the role of Homer was originally supposed to be a, a soldier who comes back with PTSD but he rewrote he had the part rewritten uh, for a man with who had lost his hands. He was actually a sailor uh, in the Navy, and he lost his hands in the story in, a, in an attack. And famously, he never, quote-unquote, saw combat because he was always down below, like working in the boiler. Harold Russell gives an incredible performance. You can tell throughout the movie that he is, uh, that he is an amateur. There are, there are times when you're watching it, and he, it seems like, it seems like he, he's the one guy on screen who isn't completely comfortable interacting, but there is such a rawness to his performance. Again, this has been said a million times about Harold Russell's performance that you just you give yourself over to, to to Homer he is he's a guy who returns from the war he was uh, betrothed to a woman from back home he was you know he comes from a small town he comes from you know sort of a, a quiet reserved family who is not prepared to deal with uh to deal with a son returning who has lost his hands uh, has had them replaced with two to um, mechanical, basically hooks. But Harold Russell really had, of course, these hooks and knew how to use them. And Homer's abilities are put on display early on in the movie. And you realize this, he's, he's, a, he's a guy who, is, who has been deeply affected by losing his hands, but not necessarily traumatized by losing his hands. He has a sort of like can-do attitude, this eternal optimism that is going to, you know is going to serve him well if people will just give him a chance and just stop looking at him as a man who has lost his hands. And he basically uh, says that in the movie, like, yeah, I have a hard time at this and I feel like I'm going to have a tough life ahead of me, but look what everything I can do. And I, I know that uh, William Wyler came under fire when he, when he cast Harold Russell. People thought it was stunt casting and actually thought it was a little exploitative 
when he did it. But and I'm going to compare this to to the character to the to the sideshow characters in Freaks, which we covered many many movies ago. You are allowed to see to see a person who has a disability as a full person and to say, yes, he has a disability, but that that does not define him. That is not who he is. He's got a whole life. So we're allowed to see Homer move through his his disability, e- educate the people around him that if you're willing to if you're willing to say, OK, this guy's got some differences, but he's not uncomfortable with who he is. So you all have to now be comfortable with who he is. It's one of those. You can see why people still watch this movie and are like, oh, this is a very valuable, this is a very valuable character to have on screen. People with disabilities should be cast as people with disabilities. And uh, he's basically the poster poster boy for that, saying, like, if you want to portray people with disabilities on screen, cast people with disabilities. William Wyler did it in 1946, and there's no reason to not do it now. Harold Russell does it with flying colors. And he went on to have, uh, to be to be quite the... Uh, quite the spokesperson for veterans with disabilities. He went on to be in a few other films after this, and he's famously the only person to have ever sold his Academy Award, he says, to uh, for his wife's medical bills. And he went on to have a to have an illustrious uh, a, an illustrious career uh, as a spokesperson for people with disabilities. So, you know, great for Harold Russell. And his story is the one that really comes full circle in this. You get to watch you get to watch Homer educate his future wife about his life and work through anger and I don't know, there's something about the character of Homer. You get to see him be angry. You get to see him be frustrated with the people around him and you get to see the people around him snap out of it and grow to to respect this man. Uh, the third guy is Al Stevenson played by the wonderful Frederick March. He was a banker before he left. He's in he's in early middle age. He has two kids, uh, a son who kind of disappears, a daughter played by uh, the wonderful Teresa Wright and a wife played by the amazing Myrna Loy. Uh, and his character is kind of in the center of everything. He was a banker. He comes back. He's given his job, and he's kind of like put in, in charge of like loans for veterans. But please don't give any veterans loans because they don't have any collateral. He makes the quote-unquote mistake of giving a loan to a veteran with no collateral so he can start a farm with his family. And he's – one of the wonderful things about this movie is none of the – I want to say villains. None of the – People have misguided ideas about veterans, but none of them are completely villainized or vilified, I should say. His boss at the bank pulls him aside after he gives a loan to a veteran and is like, this guy has no collateral. Don't make a habit out of doing this. But most of the people who are who could be the villains in this movie, you see where they're coming from. It's basically because they don't understand, like they weren't there. And that's used to draw a wonderful line between the veterans and the civilians. And it's basically – Weiler says, like, these guys came back from the war, and we weren't ready for them, and we didn't know how to deal with them, and we didn't understand where they were coming from. Al develops a drinking problem that is – beautifully played out and it's not solved his drinking problem isn't solved Myrna Loy as his I think it was uh Roger Ebert who like she's like the most patient woman ever on screen because the first night the three guys are back they all go out drinking and they bring you know and and Al brings his wife and his daughter and he gets super drunk and if it's one thing that Frederick March shows he is more than capable of doing it is playing a drunk for high comedy you have physical comedy coming off the screen and you're allowed to laugh at it because it is played for comedy 
until it isn't played for comedy. And Myrna Loy is there as his wife, and you want them to be happy. You want them to have a great marriage. And it's near the end of the movie when they're talking to their daughter, Teresa Wright, who falls for the married character of Fred, of Dana Andrews' Fred. When they tell her, basically, you think that we haven't had a hard marriage? We've had hard marriages. They don't say it in so many words, but they're like, we've we've thought it was the end of it many times over. And... you know, we we haven't had an easy go of it, and it's going to be tough in the future. And you see this very three-dimensional relationship between Frederick March and, and Myrna Loy. Teresa Wright gives yet another wonderful performance. We've seen Teresa Wright now in Shadow of It Out. We've seen her in Mrs. Miniver. Again, I'm a huge Teresa Wright fan. This isn't my favorite Teresa Wright performance. She's a little bit of a milk toast in this movie, a little bit of a wallflower. She's kind of a shrinking violet. I have now given her three metaphorical (laughs) names she is again wonderful in the role it's just not the strongest role she's not given a whole lot to she's gotten a lot of screen time but she's a little passive in the part i've seen i've seen Teresa wright play some amazing characters in her career and again does a wonderful job at it i just think that there's there's better Teresa wright roles out there again i'm not going to like call her to the mat for it she's amazing the the character the 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 woman who comes across the best in this movie is kathy o'donnell as wilma homer's fiance because everything she does she does with her posture and her eyes and her just the way she sells the role of this incredibly strong woman whose every line is misinterpreted by homer who can only see who only sees people seeing himself as a victim and it's they have this scene where he invites her up to his bedroom to show her his his routine for getting ready for bed to show her not i'm a victim but this is what i have to put up with and you know with my hands and with my prosthetics and do you still want to be with me and she's basically like yeah yeah i still want to be with you don't you get it like i'm in love with you but she doesn't say it in so many words it's an incredibly intimate moment it's an incredibly adult moment even though she tucks this man into bed and kisses him good night you're like oh oh she's fully prepared to be this man's wife not in a not in a i'm here to take care of you i've seen you like i see your body like i am I don't know how to say it except that Weiler frames it in such a way that and they perform it in such a way that you see the the physical intimacy of a man and a wife like more than any of the hugging and the kissing you wonder is are they going to have a good physical relationship and there's a way she touches him and buttons up his his shirt that you're like oh this isn't pity this isn't her quote unquote caring for him this is a this is a husband and wife and they're gonna be fine they're gonna have troubles they're gonna have struggles because we know that but they're going to be fine other standout performances are hoagie carmichael the amazing hoagie carmichael uh for those of you who don't know who hoagie carmichael is he was a tin pan alley songwriter uh he wasn't an actor uh he was friends with ian fleming and uh james bond in the ian fleming novels was described as looking like hoagie carmichael on more than one occasion he's a striking personality he's not an actor uh Seems a li- he's been in he was in several films but he's he looks a little uncomfortable on screen but as soon as he starts tickling them ivories 
dang you can't keep your eyes off Hoagie Carmichael. He is amazing as uh, as Homer's uncle who runs a bar and plays the piano at the bar, teaches Homer to play the piano. And I, I'm going to uh, let this sort of dovetail into the into the uh, cinematography. Greg Tolan. So there's a scene where Hoagie Carmichael and Homer are playing the piano together. It's in this intense scene. So Fred, played by Dana Andrews, has fallen for Peggy, played by Teresa Wright, who is warned off of Peggy by Al, Peggy's father. And it's this incredibly tense scene between Al and Fred. And Fred goes to, okay, so Fred goes to the phone booth in the bar to call Peggy and basically call it off. It's that is happening in the background. Uh Homer and his uncle, played by Hoagie Carmichael, are playing the piano in the foreground. Al is watching them play the piano, but also keeping his eyes on Fred in the background, calling it. Now, the cinematographer for this movie was Greg Toland, who was also the cinematographer for Orson Welles in that famous, famous Orson Welles movie that I can't even think of the name of right now, Citizen Kane. Anyone here of Citizen Kane? Uh, he was the uh, cinematographer for Citizen Kane, and he perfected this deep focus technique in filmmaking. We were able to film a scene where everything is in in focus, no matter how far away from the camera it is. So you're, instead of the things up in the, in the foreground being in sharp focus and the things in the background being blurry like you see in real life, uh, everything is in, is in this incredibly deep focus. And it allows this scene, I don't know how to put it, you as the, as the viewer are able to decide what you're focusing on. And whereas that runs the danger of looking very flat because William Wyler is a brilliant filmmaker and uh, Greg Toland was a brilliant cinematographer, everything is lit so well that it is like you're watching a play. The actors are blocked in such a way that your eye is drawn to where it is supposed to be drawn to by the power of the direction. Uh, that's something that you learn as a stage director is that, okay, the audience is able to look at everything that's on stage unless it's, you know, blacked out or whatever. But you as a director are then required to block to stage your actors so that the audience knows where to look. And that is the brilliance of this scene. So you're watching in the foreground is this amazing piano performance by a man who has uh, essentially hooks for hands uh, playing with the amazing Hoagie Carmichael and you're watching the brilliant uh, Frederick March also on screen being uh, emotionally pained and then but your eyes are drawn to the back and you're watching way in the back background Dana Andrews making an incredibly painful phone call uh, and it just works brilliantly uh, the cinematography this movie is so beautifully filmed that when Dana Andrews leaves and and Homer is like hey Fred and Fred ignores him you're like oh that was a bad phone call the scene immediately just cuts to Teresa Wright walking into the kitchen having just had that phone call and the look on her face is enough that you know exactly what happened in that phone call like I said this isn't the strongest Teresa Wright performance but it is a strong performance and so much there is a the moment where where Fred and Al where Al basically tells Fred you got to stop you got to leave my daughter alone because I don't want her to end up with a guy like you like I like you Fred but I don't want my daughter to be with you you watch Fred's eyes water up like this is a man like this is a man who has lost everything losing even more like his wife doesn't want anything to do with him his parents I don't know it, the the relationship between Fred and his his dad and I guess his stepmom uh, there's a woman he calls by the for his her first name the scenes with the with there's a scene at the end where Fred leaves and 
uh, he's got all these like like these like commendations for uh, like how he won, won his medals, and his father is sitting there reading everything that his son went through, and his father is choking up. That was the moment that really just hit me. That's the moment where the movie crystallized and became the, the he's he calls his his I, I assume his wife over and is like listen to this and he starts reading out these these commendations for for Fred's bravery in battle um and it's just it's just amazing I, the, the the movie wraps itself up nicely with Homer getting married to uh to to his to Millie and with Fred and Peggy getting back together it feels a little hasty at the end Fred and Peggy get back together at the wedding it's 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 weird uh, there, there are moments in this movie. What keeps me from giving it a full five out of five stars is there's a, there's a few moments of heightened melodrama that I'm like, whoa, 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 what movie are we in now? At times, it seems like we're watching three different films depending on which character we're focused on. But this movie, okay, this movie is three hours long. The best years of our lives, a three hour long movie, and it never feels. You never feel the three hours. It is, it is tight. It is well edited. It is so beautifully performed, and nothing feels extraneous. So even though it's a little uneven in places, uh, it's not as hit you over the head with its message as Mrs. Miniver was. I feel like William Wyler did a brilliant job bringing it all together. I have to credit. I have to credit the screenplay by Robert E. Sherwood. If you don't know the work of Robert E. Sherwood, he took what was essentially a, a, a novel in 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 blank verse written by McKinley Cantor called Glory for Me, which I read part of. A very difficult novel to read. Uh, again, if you're if you're not used to reading blank verse, it's very strange. It's a very strange novel. So this is a guy who really knows his stuff. Uh, the, the dialogue pops, the story moves along, the direction, the cinematography, everything is great. Uh, I really, really really was glad to watch this uh, I, I went into it this time being like i don't think i've ever seen best years of our lives and then i sat down to watch it and i was like i did see this movie years ago when i was in high school but it was one of those movies that uh, a teacher was like you have to watch best years of our lives so i went in with it with a bad attitude and i realized i didn't really remember much of it uh three hours long i was kind of like just sort of strong-armed into watching it i'm really glad i went back i'm really glad i went back having watched mrs miniver right before this is a great 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 movie that I believe anyone could watch and should watch. Probably there's a reason it's considered one of the best, if not the best movies about, about war ever made because it is still fresh today. The acting is still top notch. The, it, it is, it's basically the uh, born on the 4th of July of world war two films. Uh, but, but without the, it makes its point without like going going overboard making its point. It's available on Blu-ray. You can get it. There's a wonderful Blu-ray of it. Roger Ebert in 2007 in his in his in his retrospective on it said, you know, it's a shame there's not a really good release of this movie. And to this day, there's not a good release of this movie. The Blu-ray looks nice and has a great has a great sound, great picture, but there's no special features uh, at all to speak of. There's a there's an interview with Myrna Loy and Teresa Wright, but it's like seven minutes long. No commentaries by by film historians, no look back, no retrospectives, no making of, nothing. Uh, For a movie that is considered one of the greatest movies ever made, it's just, it's a shame that it's not, it's never gotten the, the deluxe, the Criterion edition, nothing. It's, it's, it's waiting for it. People out there, please release a good, a solid look back at the best years of our lives because it deserves it, deserves it. It very much deserves it. So yeah, big thumbs up. Uh, as far as what Guillermo del Toro said, he just said it's one of the greatest American films. One of the greatest American films. And uh, I 
wholeheartedly agree. This is this is this is the William Myler film. I understand why Guillermo del Toro singles it out for praise because this is about people and about the way violence and war affects human beings, which is of course the Guillermo del Toro thing. No one gets off scot free from war. It is always a negative at the end of the day. However, as we as we know from from this movie, World War II was one of those wars where you're like totally understand why they fought it. Uh, Homer gets accosted by a guy in a at a soda shop who's like, you know, America was suckered into this war and no one, you know, there's no reason we had to fight in this war. And Homer's like, there's a reason we fought in this war. We fought the Nazis. And uh, he's like, ah, we should have let the he, we should have let Europe fall to the Nazis. And well, basically, that guy gets thrown through thrown through a glass shelf. Not too subtle, but uh, as Del Toro would always say, you know, you got to fight the fascists. And that's what World War II was all about, fighting them fascists. But again, as needful as a war may have been, there's always the fallout. And this is a movie about the fallout, but still not incredibly painful to watch. Just a beautiful film all around. So pick up the Blu-ray. It's, it's a good one to own. Hopefully they'll come out with a with a more brilliant edition later on down the line. So what is next on on the Twitter sodes? Uh, looks like my next Twitter sode is going to be Brute Force from 1947. I've never seen it. Probably never would have if it wasn't for this. So tune in next time for Brute Force. Thank you all for listening. We'll be getting back with our regular Ecstasy of Influence episodes ASAP. Thanks for putting up with little old me. And I will see you all next time when it's Del Toro time. Thank you.